From New York City, the world famous Comedy Cellar presents Live from America Podcast. With Noam Dorman and Hatem Gabber. Live from America Podcast. Where the top experts in the world and the best comics in the nation get together weekly to discuss today's issues as they cover news, culture, politics, comedy, and more with an equal part of knowledge and comedy. And now, here are your hosts, Hatem Gabber and Noam Gorman. Good. Good, good. How about you, Noam? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And the um, recording. Well, I'll tell you Go ahead. Yes. Hi, this is uh, Hatem from uh, Life America podcast with two legends. One is Noam <laughs> Dorman, the host uh, of this amazing podcast. Uh, I'm more likable, but he's, uh, you know, more famous. And uh, our favorite legal analyst, MSNBC, the one and only Danny Savalos. He's here. Good friend and smart man. And we love him here. We do love hey them. guys, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been a crazy news week. And I got to say, you know, I've been really lucky doing your show that I've never been sort of broken into on uh, on breaking news. Uh, today was one of those days we got held up a little bit with all the breaking news today uh, between the special counsel declining to prosecute uh, President Biden and, of course, Supreme Court hearings today. Uh, and that, by the way, isn't even the top three stories of the week. You know, it's been a crazy week. So I'm glad to be here. Tell us, tell us what's going on. I, I hate to say, but I haven't been following the news lately. What's going on? Well, I think one of the bigger stories I covered this week uh, was the, which may seem like a faint memory now, was the conviction of the Michigan mother uh, whose son, uh, Ethan Crumbly, was convicted of a shooting rampage that had killed four students at Oxford High in uh, in Oxford, Michigan. Uh, she was convicted this week of involuntary manslaughter for allowing her son to have access uh, to a firearm that he later used to sh shoot up a school. And Danny, this is the first parent to be held criminally responsible for a mass shooting committed by their child, right? This is why this is very unique. Yes, and in fact, I've done some research, you know, on the um, on the holding of parents responsible. It's an interesting thing. This case really re reflects a, a trend in the United States because historically there was never an automatic rule that parents are automatically liable for the bad things that their kids do, crimes or otherwise. Uh, but there has to be some reason why you're holding them responsible. And there is plenty of history of holding parents civilly responsible. For example, your parents probably told you at some point, hey, you know, if I lend you my car and I know you're reckless, you know, I'm on the hook. And they're right about that. Uh, and of course, there have been instances when parents are held criminally responsible for things their kids do. But you need some, at least prior to this week, you generally needed some evidence that they encouraged the crime. Kind of like one of those Charles Dickens-esque stories of, you know, you have a kid being urged on to commit a crime by a parent or any adult. Uh, and the other thing, maybe even a bigger deal in my mind legally than holding a mother responsible for the crimes of her son is the idea that traditionally in the States, we have said that if I'm negligent, for example, uh, I do something, negligence means I've done something or even reckless where I've disregarded a risk, but I didn't intend the bad thing to happen. But then along comes uh, a, a criminal uh, and 
commits an intentional act after my negligence, downstream from my negligence. We've said historically that the intentional act cuts off the causation. In other words, it's foreseeable that if I cause a car wreck uh, and send someone to the hospital, it's foreseeable that another doctor might be negligent and hurt them. But it's generally not considered foreseeable if I cause a car wreck and I send someone to the hospital that a shooter might come into the hospital and shoot uh, the person who I hit, and I would be held responsible. Ordinarily, the intentional criminal act of another will cut off the chain of causation of a negligent person, even a reckless person, because an intentional crime is generally not foreseeable. A bank robbery is not foreseeable. Uh, a murder is not necessarily foreseeable. So I think to me, the bigger precedent this case sets, and it doesn't really technically set a precedent, it's just a jury's verdict, uh, but the spiritual precedent this sets I think is this. It's that uh, in America, we're so terrified of school shootings that we're willing to hold people responsible under circumstances that we might not otherwise uh, hold them responsible. Uh, in this case, you know, the issue was, was it foreseeable, the shooting? And I think the jury, and I got to talk to the jury foreperson yesterday, uh, the conclusion was that at least, you know, the jury focused on things like, hey, she let him have access to the firearm. Um, they didn't really even focus that much on the mental health. But, you know, look, whatever they focus on, the verdict is the verdict. And uh, I think this is going to be um, I think this is a spiritual trend in prosecution. I think we're going to see more of these because I think Americans are just so terrified of school shootings that we're going back to maybe a, a kind of uh, a, a I guess I know I'm more of a historian than I am. But, you know, whatever cultures in history would punish, I believe maybe the Russians might do this and, you know, ancient Russia, I don't know, punish the whole, kill the whole family member when one person does something wrong. You know, I'm not saying kill anyone, but, you know, punish the parents for the sins of their child. I, I'm, uh, go ahead, no. No, I mean, I don't know and haven't thought about the legal arguments, but my gut says no. Civil, we understand. A crime because your child commits a crime. I, I, that's that's that seems like a bad path to go down. What if I what if I give you these two facts? Does it affect yeah. your analysis if uh, the there was evidence that he she had received multiple text messages from him evidencing mental health problems, and then number two that they bought the child the gun and allowed him to have act. They didn't secure the gun. They allowed the minor child to have access to the gun with knowledge of his mental health issues. I, I get the argument. Um, that's, I mean, that's clearly a civil case. Uh, I think maybe the, the state should pass a law making it a crime to, you know, a, a separate crime to allow your men, someone with mental illness or whatever it is, you know, some law, uh, the crime should be giving the gun but I like, as the point here, but the, the, but the unpredictability of, somebody doing something like that. It's just, I, I don't know. I'm, I haven't thought about it. It just rubs me the wrong way. I, I have I'll just throw this one more. I heard Adam Carolla say this on his podcast um, yeah. uh, recently or in the last few days. And I thought this was a really interesting uh, question, a law professor type question. And it was this, does this mean that we will see increased prosecutions? And this hit home with me because I, I ha I've handled so many juvenile delinquency cases and so many of those juvenile delinquency cases, I think, can be traced to, you know, not great parenting. Um, you know, that's just my personal opinion. But will we see in, say, urban or impoverished communities 
Uh, if there is a shooting committed, and man, I had a lot of juveniles with firearms uh, in in juvenile court. Uh, will we see the same prosecutions of parents uh, whose kids uh, commit maybe not mass shootings, but shoot one person in a robbery? Uh, and even if in a case where the gun was an illegal gun, not registered, and uh, there's a case to be made against the parents if they knew there was an illegal firearm in the home. I don't know. It's an interesting thought experiment. I have okay. My my question is now that I'm thinking about it, is it why is it the gun? In other words, from this, can't you then charge the parent with involuntary manslaughter for any careless action which they should have foreseen might lead to their kid mentally ill kid killing someone, letting them out of the house at all? If they no, know they you were make violent. a great point. I mean, there, this was this case, although the jury, I think, focused on the firearm. Uh, and by the way, the jury, as I understand it, was composed of firearm owners and non-firearm owners. And as I expected, according to the foreperson, the firearm owners were harsher on the mother than the non-firearm owners. I, that didn't surprise me one bit. That's by interesting. The way, yeah. Not one bit. I, I having grown up in Michigan. Uh, I was one of the I was the only friend uh, in my group that didn't own a firearm or know anything about firearms. But I can imagine all of those guys being harshly critical of a reckless firearm owner. But no, your point is is a really good one. I mean, this can be extended to any kind of recklessness because as long as you have it, the instrument may not matter. As long as you have uh, knowledge and you consciously disregard a known risk, mm -hmm. then this could be anything. Uh, uh, you have a mentally ill child who's liable to punch someone. And it's been the case law for, I don't know, forever that if you punch someone and they fall down and hit their head, that could be that could be manslaughter. That could be a crime, or they could get out and intentionally kill someone with anything—a two by four, uh, any kind of weapon at hand. I have you lend your, you lend, you lend I your have, car to someone. You lend your car to someone yeah. who you know is a reckless driver or has had had a drinking problem, uh, and they promise they won't drink, but you know you know they had a drinking problem, and then they kill somebody. Now you're guilty of murder. I just. Yeah, I ha I, I've know, been following this a little bit, and I have a couple of questions. Because first of all, why is the teachers not held legally responsible? Because they said that they received the note and they told the parents. One of the notes was, "I the kid wrote, I see blood everywhere. Help!" And right. They, they repeatedly told the parents about the problem. So why is the uh, the teachers or the people that were involved in the school not at all involved? And the second one, is that specifically for Michigan, like for Michigan law or or like it, it would have been? It's really not. It's not precedential anywhere, including Michigan, because it's only a jury's verdict. Now, what will happen is when this case gets appealed, an appellate court will review it. And then you might have precedent because they'll decide the issues of law that the defendant raises in order to try and overturn her conviction. So. It's no, it's not binding on anybody. A trial court's verdict is not binding on anyone except maybe the litigants. But once it goes to the appellate court, ironically, if it's overturned, then that would be binding. But even then, it would only be binding in Michigan. Uh, I think the precedent that everybody was talking about this week uh, was mostly spiritual. You also asked about the school. <clears throat> I thought the defense should have focused as more maybe on the school because this happened on uh, the day before the shooting. The parents were uh, called because the son was looking up ammunition on his phone. The next day, the parents came in because they found those drawings you were talking about, Hatem, uh, that he had drawn. You know, I hear voices and drawing these gruesome images on his test. 
they brought the parents in and the parents said, well, do we take them home or do we keep them? And the school was fine with keeping them. Yeah, that's and that's so my point. And also facts. the house is haunted. I mean, it's been the house for is a haunted. Long now, time. Her, right. So her testimony was, and I think this is where you get into the, it's a credibility determination, but her explanation of that was that it was a running joke in the family that he thought yeah. the house was haunted. And look, we all have jokes with our family. You know, I always think, you know, I, I don't know about you guys. I, I have my some of my best pals I'm on a group text message with. And I often think if the DOJ ever got a hold of any of these group text messages where we're as candid as we are and as bawdy and, and you know, just crass as, you know, as as you can imagine. I know a lot of people do this, men and women alike in their group texts. Now, I'd be in a lot of trouble and I'd have a hard time saying I was kidding. Can you include uh, me? Can think, you include me on that on that group? Oh, I will. I would love to. I would, I would enjoy to. that. So you don't think the teachers and the school, because it seems to me that the the kid spend more time in the school than even in the house. And they right. if, and it was not just like one or two warning and then all of a sudden happen. This has been going on for a while. So how do you yeah. not see, especially with everything going on with the school shooting and stuff like that, how do you not see red flags and you recognize that? How is the school not responsible more than the parents? You know, And that was her testimony, their approach. And they had a really difficult, they had a needle of the thread here, right? Because they couldn't have her get on the stand. They called one witness the defense and it was the defendant. She couldn't get on the stand and say, oh, no, I see now what all, it's, this is terrible. I, I wish none, you know, I feel terrible at, she had to basically get on the stand and say, I see all this evidence and I still don't think it's a red flag. That was the only path. And the jury, of course, could have interpreted that as being cavalier. Uh, and, and that was a real risk. But in a way, it was the only thing they could do, because if she got on the stand and said, you know, I, I see now what we should have seen. This is terrible. Then she's she's essentially admitting that these were red flags. She had to get on the stand and say they were not red flags. The poltergeist haunted house stuff. That was a joke. And when it came to the school, the school said, we'll keep them after calling us in. Now, the difference was that they knew he had access to a gun, the firearm or the parents at the school did not. And he unfortunately had it in his backpack during the meeting uh, with the school and his parents. So that is a distinction to be made between parent and child uh, or parent and school. But I do think that, you know, it it was probably I mean, I don't think the jury struggled with this very much, but I thought they would that there was a meeting where the school was like, yeah, he can stay, uh, even though he's drawn all these disturbing pictures. I, I So another one is, you know, the parent took him to a shooting range, you know, where he can, yep. shoot. you know, so like you would think that, you know, maybe they the recognize that he loves guns or whatever and he they want to release that negative energy which a lot of people do you know sure. let's go shoot some stuff or let's go play boxing or whatever you know what i'm saying sure so how was that, that held against them yes no no we're gonna run so, out of time on this one issue go ahead go ahead sorry danny go ahead okay so so yeah i mean i'll just be be brief you know i think hatem i think that was it th i think if this is there's a message to be taken out here it's i think that you know parents beware you know, if you want to blow off steam, because I agree with you. I mean, I think that they were happy. I think on some level they were happy that this kid who was kind of a ne'er-do-well or didn't, you know, didn't have his act together. Um, just, you know, it, he had some interest and that interest happened to be shooting. Uh, we would hope it would be something like Dungeons and Dragons, which is what I did in middle school, where nobody's really getting hurt except in your imagination. Yeah. Uh, but I think that was I think that was uh, I think that's a subtle message, a takeaway uh, from this case. So sorry, before, before we go now, the next uh, last question, what is the legal 
responsibility for parents right now? What's the legal duty you, for parents? Well, you, I mean, if the takeaway from this case is that you can't willfully ignore uh, obvious red flags and then plus that allow your child access to a firearm. I think that's the takeaway. It's a very, very narrow, specific set of facts. It doesn't stand for the proposition that parents are always responsible for everything their kids do. Not at all. All right. No, next. No, go bring up the next issue. Go ahead. Uh, you want to talk about Trump? Well, do you, I, let's do breaking news, if you may. I mean, Robert yeah, just came out with a report, a scathing report against Joe Biden. Have you, have you, are you seeing this? It's in the last hour. No. I can tell you a little about it. Yeah. Robert Hur was the special counsel uh, who investigated Joe Biden for his retention of documents. And this is breaking as we speak. He just issued a four or 500 page report, which I covered on breaking news with Lester Holt about an hour ago. And it did everything but indict the president. I mean, you know, the top line is no charges, but every other line is everything but charges. It's an indictment without an indictment. It says that he willfully, and that was the part that shocked me, that he willfully retained documents. I expected the report to conclude that he accidentally or inadvertently had documents, but the key to these document retention cases, and Noam, I know you've been following this since these kinds of cases since Hillary Clinton, the um, the the key to them is willful retention. It's why Hillary Clinton was was not considered to be prosecutable. So I ex fully expected them to conclude that Joe Biden did not willfully retain documents, but that is not what Robert Hur concluded. The report concludes that he did willfully retain and even disseminate these classified and other national secret documents. And the only reason that they do not recommend charges has nothing to do with the elements of the crime, but rather things that I would call mitigation, specifically that Joe Biden is, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that he's such a doddering, forgetful, memory loss guy and such an old sympathetic figure that they couldn't get a conviction. I got to tell you, I, I was stunned to read that. I mean, you know, as a criminal defense attorney, I, I, I just said this on air, but, you know, it would be great for my clients if the prosecutor concluded, oh, he doesn't remember committing the crime. Oh, well, I guess we can't prosecute him. Fantastic. <laughs> but, but that does not happen ever. Not legal. Uh, this report is scathing. Well, if it's willfully, then why would it matter that he's old now? Well, he wasn't old when he did it. No, I agree. I mean, I, I listen, I understand mitigation. The report concludes that they couldn't they don't believe they could secure a conviction because the defendant would be uh, would be, I guess, likable. I'm trying to remember the wording, but that they would be sympathetic to Joe Biden. I mean, that is the proper analysis for a federal prosecutor. I have to give them credit for that. They have to consider whether they think they can get a conviction. It's just rare I see the inner workings. I, it's rare that I see a federal prosecutor conclude that because somebody is old and they don't remember committing the crime, that they can't prosecute them. That part well, to I, me I, 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 seems I, a little I, strange. I, I didn't know about this, and I'm 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 having the same reaction that you're describing as I'm I'm thinking about it. And and this this stinks to high heaven because and again, tell me if I'm wrong, and you'd be surprised. I really haven't been up on this stuff like I used to be, but um, this is not an ordinary crime. This is a crime where uh, there's a there's there's strong public uh, interest, public policy reasons mm -hmm. that these things must be prosecuted. This is it. It's it's these are these are classified documents, and. Um, there has to be, I would think that that's the kind of thing that if you're going to start prosecuting this crime, 
you have to do it across the board. You can't say, well, people, you know, they, they, they don't, Trump's probably a, a less likable guy. So we'll probably get a conviction with him. But since Biden is more likable and he's old, we won't get a conviction with him. So we're not going to prosecute that. That's just not okay. And and by the way, it's it's tremendously divisive. I mean, it's it's bad for the country. You you can't sell that to the country. It it just stinks to high heaven. Yeah, I think it's really problematic. But what's interesting to me is, you know, I'm not a political expert, but I have to say, you know, you remember in 2016 when this news broke, when uh, uh, James Comey called a press conference and said he wasn't going to prosecute Hillary Clinton for retention of documents or for emails. And that was mainly because it was not intentional. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting to think how that derailed her campaign may have cost her the presidency. I actually don't think it'll be a blip on Joe Biden. I don't think this, I think it'll be a major theme of Trump's campaign. I think they're going to make news, you know, they'll make ads about it, but I, I don't think it'll land with the same power as the the announcement by Comey uh, as to Hillary Clinton. And I just think it's because that was a different era. I think it's, you know, well, we're talking eight years ago and they, now nobody's changing their mind who they're voting for. Uh, back then people were persuadable. And now, uh, I mean, it's, it's fascinating that the conduct described by this report is far more egregious uh, than Hillary Clinton's alleged conduct. And I don't think it'll affect Biden's, you know, supporters or I don't think it'll, he'll lose one voter as a result of it. Uh, but I do think it's really problematic. And by the way, as a side note, isn't it concerning as a voter or anyway, a, a citizen, a constituent, that the leader of the free world <laughs> It's not being prosecuted because he can't remember anything. I mean, look, and in fairness, the White House is saying that's not true. You know, that, that they're, you know, that Robert Herr, they're going to say is a Republican prosecutor. Uh, and, you know, they're going to probably claim this is a, a political conclusion that he can't remember anything. But if true at all, it sure is. It doesn't doesn't make me feel great about our commander in chief. If the only reason he's not being prosecuted is that he's feeble and can't remember anything. Well, you know, yesterday, and I, I, I want to get to another thing, but yesterday um, was the first time I've always kind of defended Biden on this charge of senility. Not kind of, I, I always did. I always felt that he was more just like a regular old person to me, which is slower, but like our grandparents were, but that didn't mean he was senile. It just meant he was a normal old man. He wasn't with it like Fauci, but he's, you know, but yesterday I saw a video where it appeared that he couldn't remember recall the word Hamas. He's like, um, uh, the, the opposition. And uh, that, my gut says, no, you know what? That's that's a bridge too far. You're dealing with, remind me what Mueller couldn't remember the the the, the um, infraction of conspiracy. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's too much. And uh, it just seems like there's no way he's going to be able to serve four years it's going to accelerate. So, so you know, it it I, you can still vote for him, hoping that when it's time, there'll be a smooth transition of power to the vice president. But all of which is to say, there's never been an election where we were more clearly ought to be concerned, where where we more clearly needed to be concerned with who the vice president was, and almost as if we should assume we're going to vote for some number of time with Biden and some number of time some amount of time with the vice president. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. anyway. Uh, um, so, so can we uh, talk about, did you happen to see, unless there's another breaking news thing. 
No, the, no, no. This, that's, I mean, other than the Supreme yeah. Court, which was all hearing today, but. I am very fascinated with this notion of these states taking Trump off the ballot. And um, I was shocked, really shocked to, to read a, a piece by uh, Akhil Reed Amar, this Yale professor who I've seen in the past as being a kind of pretty brave thinker, um, saying that he thought this these decisions were uh, defensible. And um, two, two points, uh, he, he says that, you know, the states ought to be able to decide for themselves what insurrection is and then just take them off the ballot. I don't know if you read the piece. So my, I don't know if you want to, if you, have you given, have you thought deeply about this issue? Because if you have, I want to ask some questions about it, but. Oh, I mean, I, I covered the here. I listened to the hearings all day and I can tell you, I mean, listen to the oral argument all day today and um, all morning rather. I was sitting actually in court in Supreme Court in New York, uh, waiting for my case to be called and listening to the oral argument on my uh, on my earbuds. It's first I'll start with this. It's incredibly complex. So I'll try to distill it. I mean, I you know, it's easy for me to even get lost during oral arguments, which I find you know very difficult because all the litigants are using shorthand for different cases that they've, you know, memorized um, every word of and us mortals, you know, are trying to play catch up. But uh, here's the thing. I think you're, you're seizing on something. I think ultimately the unwritten, unspoken reason that the Colorado decision will be overturned is because I think the justices just can't, uh, it, it's not workable to have states just be able to deem someone, whether by court or administratively, uh, a, an insurrectionist and just remove them from the ballot, especially in states. And I've lived in them where where you elect your judges and you can have a you know, and, and I, I can tell you that there's quite a stark difference between elected and appointed judges. And you can get a Supreme Court in a state that is comprised of elected judges that, you know, their qualifications are that they were able to raise money or for a particular party. And so uh, I think that's that's concerning. Now, there are a number of different legal principles we can talk about. But if we're going to step back and sort of talk broad strokes, I think that's something the court is struggling with. I think there's a good chance they may conclude that Trump is not an officer within the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And the reason I say that is it's one of the off ramps for the Supreme Court that gives them a global resolution. In other words, if they find, for example, that co under Colorado law, you can't uh, you can't they didn't follow the law correctly or more specifically, they find that Colorado courts are not the appropriate place to make this determination. Well, that doesn't answer anything about all the other 49 states. So the issue isn't settled. But if you decide that Donald Trump as a matter of law is not an officer within the meaning of Section three of the 14th Amendment, then it doesn't apply to him. And then all these cases go away. I still think that's a tough lift. Um, it could go either way on that issue. But that is why I think the Trump team focused mightily on that issue and all but abandoned some of their other issues, including, you know, is he or is he not an insurrectionist? Well, the next question, first of all, section, I'm just looking at it now. There's two, there's two points that, that, that I think of. First is that section five says the Congress Three. shall have, no, I'm looking at section five of the 14th amendment. The last, okay. the last section says the Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation, the provisions of this article. Not the right. states, the Congress. I, I, I don't know. Has that been interpreted? So, so what you're talking about is, is, is it self-executing? And now it's another major issue that was raised. So, for example, you may remember prohibition. I, I know you don't remember it, but prohibition, <laughs> <laughs> prohibition, 
Uh, prohibition was a product of the 18th Amendment. However, it required a separate act of Congress to animate that. In other words, the Prohibition Amendment didn't do anything. Uh, an act of Congress called the Volstead Act had to actually bring it to life. So the big one of the big questions today, and these things are so complex, is whether or not the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is self-animating, self-executing, or does it require uh, an act of Congress? And you're seizing on Section 5, and that came up a lot during today's argument, is whether or not uh, that Congress, this, this requires Congress to enact legislation, or is it simply self-executing? And so uh, I think that that there is an argument that it is not self-executing. Another argument is going to be that he isn't an officer. And when you look at Section 3, I know you have it up there. Section 3 lists specific offices that are subject to it, and the president is omitted. Now, when you look at the debates prior to enactment of, of Section uh, 3, which debates shouldn't matter, it's only the text of the ultimate um, the ultimate statute, or in this case, the amendment, uh, you know, there was discussion, oh, well, we assume the president's in there because he's an officer. So, and Judge Kata Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson smartly, I thought, seized on this. She said, look, there's a list. I'm troubled by the fact that there's a list of people who this covers and the president isn't in there. And you can say all these other officers, but even that is a tricky definition because there are instances where members of Congress act as officers if they're president pro tem, but they're not officers within the meaning of the Constitution. And I think a lot of this, as I think fairly Trump's Trump's counsel, I thought did quite a good job. Uh, he he was, you know why I thought he did a good job is he made concessions. He said things like, look, sometimes the statutes are not poorly written. It's more about what gets passed uh, by the legislature and they yield goofy results. And this may be one of those instances where it I, strangely only protect, protects former President Trump, mostly because he's somebody who never, uh, who who was never, who had never taken an oath, a specific oath that he wouldn't have taken as president, or that a senator might have made. It, it's it's all so esoteric and complex. But I think at the end of the day, the, I, I didn't want to get too much into the weeds. But I think the big takeaway is there are so many off ramps for the Supreme Court to return Trump to the ballot, and con by contrast. They need to find a lot of things exactly all the same for Colorado to keep him on. So or, excuse another, me, to keep him removed. Another question is, so let's say Colorado had a, uh, let's say it's like a state issue. I'm, I might get this wrong, but let's say there's a state, a state constitution and the state Colorado state constitution says, um, nobody shall be governor if they robbed a bank or committed a robbery. Okay. And yep. then um, the secretary of state, remove somebody from the ballot because they've decided uh, somebody robbed a bank. And the guy okay. says, and the guy says, wait, but I've never been charged with bank robbery. Uh, you, right. you, uh, that on the face is so such an absurd violation of due process. I, I don't see how you get past that. And as a matter of fact, you know, they could, by that logic, they could, even if you were acquitted of the bank robbery, the secretary right. of state is like, nope. You're not like, but here's the thing, it doesn't make right? Sense so a couple me. different things that, that make this, the, the, your example is a good one, but there are a couple things. First of all, you're talking all intrastate. A governor is a, a state officer. It doesn't implicate the federal constitution arguably at all. And part of the complexity here is the really, really uncomfortable interplay between states being able to run their own elections and the fact that this is a federal election for a federal uh, uh, president. 
So that adds some complexity. The other yeah, thing you talk about, the, I'm sorry, but, but, but the Bill of Rights, you know, covers everybody. And as, as I remember these broad issues in law school, you can't be punished of a crime. State, local, federal, doesn't matter. You cannot be punished for of a crime uh, if there's a conclusion that you did it without any hearing whatsoever. This is such a bedrock principle that I, there may be no precedent on the 14th Amendment that even needs to be brought up here. You, so you, now I don't get instincts, it. Yet. Yeah, your instincts are right because due process was yet another of the 17 or so issues that came up. But due process actually doesn't help the president all that much because uh, due process, if they if they overturn it based on due process, it just means they can do it again if they give them the right process. And by the way, what would be the right process? Now, you, you asked about an ex post facto law, something that punishes someone after the you know, after the crime is committed or uh, without without due process, as you said, a conviction without due process. But here's what makes it so complicated is that this is not he's not accused of a crime. The insurrection is mentioned in a non-criminal statute in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Now, meanwhile, you also have a criminal federal statute uh, that is an insurrection statute. And they one predated the other by just a couple of years. So it does raise yet another thorny question. Does it require a conviction of insurrection or simply because the language simply says shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same? Wait, doesn't it doesn't say convicted. Doesn't the Constitution have the death penalty for treason? Sure. Yes. Are you telling me they could put somebody to death without actually trying him for treason because it's not a criminal statute? It's the Constitution. No, but this is not a criminal consequence. Section three just speaks to disqualification from holding office. Right. But I'm saying right? the Constitution mentions treason outside the criminal context. It right. mentions insurrection outside the criminal context. But I don't believe they could they could give somebody the punishment in the Constitution for treason without a trial for treason. They couldn't. No, they couldn't. Nor because could a state. the crime, because it's spoken it. of, right? But it's spoken of as a crime in, in the oh, uh, in the Constitution. Oh, and I'm if sorry. it's a crime, okay. then then that implicates yeah. all the the rights in the Bill of Rights that relate to crimes: Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. But this is simply a a disqual. But by the way, your yeah. point was raised: is oh, what kind okay. of insurrection is required? And and as a corollary to that, who decides? Who decides that someone engages in insurrection? If it has nothing to do with the courts, are the courts even involved? Or if it's, is it a secretary of state? You know, you notice the Trump team originally argued that this was a non-justiciable political question. In other words, it was not something the courts could decide, but that doesn't work for them either because if you're Maine or or uh, or any of these states, you say, oh, okay, so the courts can't decide I'm an insurrectionist. Fine, then the secretary of state will do it. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened uh, with Colorado and with Maine. Maine did it. And uh, they concluded, hey, he's an insurrectionist. Therefore, uh, we've satisfied our political question doctrine. So you're, you're right. I mean, a major part, and this is one of Justice Kavanaugh's big lines, is who decides and who decides if insurrection has been committed? The framers completely left us in the dark about that. But by the way, uh, I should say the post-Civil War framers, this is a post-Civil War amendment. It was designed to prevent uh, Confederate soldiers from running for dog dog catcher and and uh, and holding an office. And the ironic thing, and it is a funny concept that if the Section Three doesn't apply to the president, then 
it, uh, it, it the idea couldn't have been to prevent every Confederate from running ev- running for every other office in America but president. They didn't want Jefferson Davis to run for president. That I, I think that would have I think he would have been barred. But I don't know anymore. I think we'll if find not, out. I, I'm I'm constantly astonished at how ham handed they are. Every not every but. Many, many people look at this and they know exactly what's going on here. They see a hyper-partisan uh, weaponization of the justice system against Trump in many, many different cases. They understand that he was actually not charged with treason, that the people who, with a insurrection, insurrection. That, it's insurrection, that the people who looked at that issue decided they didn't have the goods on him, that uh, he gave a speech uh, the, he and he didn't even get charged with incitement for, for the insurrection. It stinks to high heaven. You'd wish that reasonable pe- people could be decent enough to hate their political enemies without doing such things. And in the end, this can only help Trump. If, right. if uh, I agree, I do agree with you there. I do think I do think in the end this is. Only, I mean, I think the polls speak for themselves. I mean. I just saw uh, uh, Nikki Haley lost. Uh, I forgot the state. Nevada. To, that was know, my question. Actually, Nevada lost yeah. to everybody. The, the field. I don't know. Yeah, that, that was actually my, my common question: is if if that happened, can, and they keep Trump out of the ballot, and you know all the fields like none of those candidate field is won every state. What what happened then? And can and can the well, uh, actually can I think Trump you're team... talking about if he's if he's dis- well then if you're talking about the disqualification, there's some really crazy things. That- start coming up by the way if section three only disqualifies him from holding office look at the title holding office there's an argument to be made that as a candidate he's not even covered he shouldn't he should be able to run and then if he gets elected he's disqualified and then what republicans i think would want to happen is he wins and then elise stefanik or whoever is his running mate is automatically the president, which is a win for Republicans. So yeah. that's why you see them advancing and, that, and if it's that legally, strange sounding argument. And if it's legally like none of these candidates won the state, like we saw in Nevada, does that mean the number two in the ballot is the winner or still because they announced it as I, I don't that candidate. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how Nevada does that. I don't know who's considered to be, you know, to have. Uh, I mean, this is really no. Just Nevada the did did say number one was none of those candidates. That's who won. right. So yeah, yeah but what I mean, it's, it's a primary. Like so it's, right. It's it's a primary. So I, I don't know. I don't know what the net effect is, except that you know, Nikki Haley. I don't. You obviously can't nominate at the um, at the uh, ex, at the Republican convention. You can't nominate uh, uh, no name. You know. So I don't know how they deal with that. That's kind of outside of my my realm. Uh, I just, somebody just sent me an email in a conversation recorded at a rented property in Virginia in February, 2017, a month after he left office, Mr. Biden told his ghostwriter, he had just found all the classified stuff downstairs. <laughs> and they said, Mr. Yeah. said exchange was the strongest uh, basis for prosecution. But given the fact that he did, Biden had grown accustomed to legally retaining documents as vice president. He might not have fully adjusted to the restrictions and believed he had the right to keep his personal notes based on President Reagan's retention of similar material for decades. Well, you know, it's possible. I don't know if he knew about Reagan's retention. That seems a little charitable. But, you know, my feeling about this is that they all have been keeping classified documents there are somebody said my thought too obama said there are classified documents and there are classified documents and they they over classify so many things that it's breeded a certain casualness 
with the, and they should probably just start over from scratch and you know stop trying to get ahead on a pike and just you know lay down a, a law that makes more sense because you know it's like jaywalking at this point yeah yeah i, I mean you're right i mean to me the probably the strongest and the weakest case i think the easiest case to make against trump is the florida documents case but then i, I have these moments where i think yeah but should we really be running around checking everyone's documents you know but didn't trump also obstruct not- justice didn't he also obstruct by ordering people like to once they were asked oh, yeah. for oh yeah well, that's serious absolutely that's oh <laughs> totally agree totally yeah. agree and that's why this report goes to great pains to make a distinction between what trump did in terms of learning that people were looking for the documents and then moving them around and hiding them yeah. and what joe biden did and again the part that i just that surprised me that shocked me was that they concluded that he did so willfully. I thought they would conclude that he, everything he did was inadvertent. Uh, and uh, that part surprised me, I have to say. With with all the Trump uh, legal troubles now, like we've been talking about that for years and years and years and years, and he never get in trouble. And he always, because most of the time they like, like Noam say, they just not being reasonable. They just, you know. So what do you think? Where we stand right now? Do you think Trump will get in trouble before the election legally or no? I actually I'm going to double down. I've just been, you know, like betting on red on this one the whole time. And I just don't think any of the trials are going to go forward before the election. I think we're getting too danger close. Uh, And I think, uh, for example, the D.C. um, election interference case has already been uh, kicked down the road. In theory, the Supreme Court could set a schedule that could have trial by summer. Um, but you know, look, that's pretty darn close, but that would be pretty crazy because in theory, a regular defendant, if convicted in the summer in federal court would be looking at a sentencing probably on the day of the election, uh, based on normal timing, but none of this is normal timing. It's all completely skewed. So you think he's gonna, he's gonna be okay. Uh, if he, if he, if the federal cases are still pending when the, um, when he's inaugurated, if he is inaugurated, then they go away. If the um, it, and I have to tell you, that leaves New York criminal, which I don't think is a strong case. Uh, and then I think Fulton County, you know, I've talked about this, but I think uh, Fulton County's got a good chance of, of going away too, given this most recent motion. And folks, I've got a hard out, I got to go to the next go. show here. Go, yes. Danny. All right, love best. you guys. Take it Thanks easy. Thanks for having Danny. me. Love have you. Good one. Bye. Bye. Live on my podcast. Do you have any um any any thoughts on that? No. Do you think Trump is gonna uh, get indicted before the election? I, I I'm sorry. I have no thoughts. I haven't been following it. I've I've really become fatigued after I don't know how many years of after seven years of following I it. I finally reached my limit. Um, literally from almost the day he was inaugurated in, in 2017. There's just been a daily scandal right every fucking day and um you know i i thought almost all of them were ridiculous but the the, the documents the, you know obstructing justice is is a very is a very clear thing if the if they're asking for the documents and then he asks somebody to um hide them or not to comply with the lawful order that's a pretty clear violation you know i don't i don't know what the penalty is for that but that's serious it's the only one I think is pretty clear. Yeah. What about your thoughts on the first thing we talked about the uh, the school shooting, holding the parents? Yeah, I said I don't. I, I think it seems like a bad idea to me, but you know, I do understand the emotionally when when you hear a story where 
somebody winds up dead uh, based on an outrageously reckless behavior of a of an adult, you feel that they should be punished. You know, you don't you don't want to let them get away with it. They say that uh, bad law, hard cases make bad law. This might be an example of that, but I I, just, I understand the urge to want to punish them. Yeah, I think it's 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 a fight for the you know is the gun battle you know legalizing of the gun. So they're trying to get another angle. I I think they should be you know for that specific case, but I don't know if they're gonna keep going like that. You know. All right. Uh, All right. Let's All right. wrap it up. We'll see you soon. Okay. Bye.